Well, thank you, Huey, for your sharing. Good job, Mexico team. Um, what a wonderful summer it has been. Four teams plus BBS, so five teams doing the gospel work, and we give all the glory to Christ for granting us the strength to do all these things um, for His glory, for His purposes. It has been a tremendous summer. Um, on September 30th, we'll have, a, I believe, on a Saturday night, or a Friday night, or a Saturday night, one of those nights we'll gather together for prayer and praise, where we will reminisce about the summer and all the work that we were able to do together, and just rejoice and uh, give praise to God, give thanks to Him for His faithfulness to to us. Good job, Mexico team. Uh, thank thank God for you and just the example that you have set um, to all of us. Um, good to be back for me. Uh, greatly miss the body here at Cornerstone. It really does uh, pain my heart to be away. Uh, it feels like I've been gone for six weeks because I was here two weeks ago, but I was so jet lagged. It was a whole, all a blur. My wife and I came back home and it just was a whole a blur to us. So it feels like we've been gone for six weeks. Uh, I truly thank the church, thank the leaders, uh, pastors, and shepherds for um, sending us and trusting us that our hearts are indeed here with Cornerstone, um, that my desire is to be with the body, but um, sending us for gospel work um, to Czech Republic for three weeks and also to Spokane, Washington for one week. I'll share briefly about Czech. One, one thing I want to share with all of you. And we went there mainly for the gospel ministry, to preach the gospel, to uh, uh, the atheists gathered together at the English camp. We went there also to minister to the believers there, um, the members of the church, churches at Claude de Wanusti. But, you know, God had another reason, and for that, which, for that we are very thankful. Um, going there two years in a row allowed us and allowed me to have and develop a uh, a real sweet relationship with Pastor Peter Smith. Uh, going there two years in a row allowed us to really fellowship at a deeper level, allowed our families to spend time together and, and, and talk and pray and um, share our battle stories, you know, share our times of joy in, in life and ministry and also share our, our sorrows and, and challenges in ministry. And uh, God used that time to really knit our hearts together. And uh, it was really um, something that was really joyful. Allowed us to have great unity, um, unity of purpose, unity of heart, unity in doctrine and philosophy of ministry, unity in life. And there was a great sense of just um, oneness, a kindred spirit, as we uh, both desire to minister together for a long time together. So we thank God for that. That was so important for um, Dale and Joan being there, really being a bridge for that relationship. And it's with greater confidence we can leave Joan and Elaine to continue the work that Dale and Joan began because of the unity that we have with um, Pastor Peter and myself and our church. Um, our brief time at Spokane, we left last Wednesday, came back this Thursday, um, Pastor John Smith, church planted Christ Our Hope Bible Church in Spokane Valley, Washington. About two years ago, about a church of about 200 similar size as us, he asked me to come and preach at their second ever family camp. 
So spoke five times. The first time to the leaders, the elders, pastors of that church uh, on uh, spiritual leadership from 1 Timothy chapter 4. It was a very daunting, somewhat difficult thing to do because um, demographically they're very different. They're a much older group. Uh, some of them are old enough to be my, my parents, if not maybe my grandparents. <laughs> I mean, they're much more seasoned, so much more wisdom and insight understanding. So with very just lowliness of heart, I just stood behind the text and ministered God's word to the leaders there. Uh, I preached four sermons from John, 4, John 17 on sanctification. And uh, I was so humbled. I was so grateful to God because it was so well received. An overwhelming response to the word of God. It's not because of the preacher, but it's because of the word of God. And... To the tenderness of their hearts. These were older saints, some who had been walking with the Lord 30, 40, 50 years, and yet their hearts were so tender, so open to the Word of God. It really uh, ministered to me and to my wife. It really humbled us, and it was a richly blessed time together. Um, we had an opportunity with them. They were asking me what we did this year, and we shared briefly about our our scouting trip to Asia, and Pastor John Smith was so ecstatic. He was so open and so desirous to learn more that we had a dinner with all the elders, and he wanted me to pretty much give a presentation of our scouting trip and our prayers and our future work there, and his desire as himself and his church to somehow partner with us in our efforts in that region. That was an answer to prayer. We're a young church. We need the experience of older, uh, godly saints, older saints in the Lord, and to have them be so um, open and uh, desirous to work with us was truly an answer to prayer. Uh, it gave us greater confidence that this, is, this indeed is uh, God leading us to the church to, uh, to work in that region. So please pray for us, the elders. And the shepherds, pastors are getting together in the months to come to really finalize our decisions. And we hope to um, start work there as soon as God would allow us. Well, our text for this morning is John 12, 27 through 29. We're in between books. We finished the Gospel of John. And... Uh, don't foresee us starting our next study, our, our next book study for at least until October. And please pray for me as I wrote in my email that I'm still debating between several books. Um, there's a small part of me, I want to study the Gospel of Luke. Just, I love studying the Gospels. I love studying the life of Christ. But, you know, that's a small part of me. There's other part of me, and likewise with you. There are 65 other books in the Bible that would be great as well. So, Part of me want to study uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. Study the life of Daniel and his prophecies. Also, perhaps Titus is, might be a book we'll study next. These are three books that I'm mulling over, praying about, thinking through. This is the hard part. Once, I, once we choose a book, it's easy. Just go through the book and let God's Word speak. But to choose the book... Um, I don't want to have any of my own self-will involved in the process, so it's the most difficult part. So pray. I want to uh, get um, 
Bob's input and the pastors and decide together on what book as a church we should study together. So in the meantime, we're going to do different studies, maybe uh, review some of our studies in the Gospel of John, maybe do some studies in the book of Psalms and other books as well. But for this morning, I felt my heart gravitate towards John 12, 27 to 29. Preached this sermon at the Claudno Church uh, when I was there a few weeks ago. But a whole different take, really a whole different packaging of the same story. And to begin this time, I want to begin with a story. It's familiar to some of you. It's new for some. If it's new for you, great. If it's familiar, well, pretend like you never heard it again and respond in that way. Uh, I'll preface it by saying the story never occurred. Now you know what story it is. This made-up story didn't happen uh, made up story, but has a good point. Our Lord was walking along the Sea of Galilee one day, and uh, he told he, they were ministering all day. They were hungry, they were tired. Late in the afternoon, our Lord knew that the disciples were hungry, so he turned to them and told them to pick up a rock. So all of them, out of obedience to Christ, picked up a rock to carry till till, till evening. So Thomas carried a fist-sized rock. Apostle John, you know, loves the Lord, carried a real heavy-sized rock. Peter, you know, in his mind, as some of a pragmatist, picked up a little pebble and said to himself, first-time hearers right there, <laughs> so thought to himself, in my definition, this is a rock to me, and put that pebble in his pocket, and they're walking along. Well, later that night, our Lord, um, they're all hungry, hadn't eaten all day because of ministry, our Lord turns to them and said, I don't know, he said something. And the rocks all turned to bread, right? They all turned to bread. So Thomas is happy. He's got some, you know, cheese spread with him. He's got some cream cheese and he's making a little bagel for himself. You know, John's happy because he happened to have some, I don't know, honey mustard and uh, bologna. And he's making a nice sandwich for himself. Now Peter is bummed because he's got a little crouton in his pocket. <laughs> you know, one bite and it's gone. And he turns towards John and, you know, he says, remember our Lord taught us to share and that's, you know, love one another. And John's saying, hey, brother, you know, I've been carrying this rock all day. My back's killing me. I know you, Peter, you little, you know. I saw you put that pebble in your pocket. I'm not going to share my bread. You go to sleep. You will not, you will not work. You shall not eat. Right? Paul borrowed that from John. It's all made up, right? So Peter went to bed, really bummed, really, you know, despondent. A few days later, our Lord's walking along the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Same thing, hadn't eaten because they're ministering. Pick up a rock. They all pick up a rock. And now Peter's no dummy. He's got good long-term memory. He finds the largest rock, boulder, he can carry on his back, puts it on his shoulder, and he's carrying it with joy all day because he's hoping, he knows, later tonight it's going to turn to bread and he brought like, you know, cheese and, I don't know, bologna and some spam with him. I don't know. He's got all these things. Make a nice sandwich for him later that night. Well, later that night, our Lord says to them, throw your rocks into the Sea of Galilee. So Peter's wondering what's going on. He's making soup. Was he make some, some noodles here? They throw it in and our Lord says, let's go to sleep. And Peter's bombed. Peter's like, you know, he's filled with anger almost. Where's my bread? And our Lord turns to Peter and said, you guys know, right? For who were you carrying the rock? Right? Were you carrying it because you're obeying your master out of love for me? Or are you carrying the rock for yourself, for your selfish motivations, for personal gain, 
what obedience will mean for you. For who were you carrying your rock? I might tell that story again because it highlights the importance of motivations. That if our motivations are wrong, it undermines obedience. It undercuts it. It destroys our obedience. It makes it into nothing. In fact, it makes it worse than nothing because our obedience is proved to be hypocritical. Right? If we do the right thing for the wrong reasons, it's not just nothing, it's wrong. It's hypocrisy. And for everyone, that word leaves a bitter taste in our mouth because the last thing we want to be is be a hypocrite. Be externally righteous to others and yet God sees our hearts and it's the wrong motivation. Therefore, it's hypocrisy. It undermines obedience. It undermines ministry. It undermines evangelism and missions. Especially missions. That we would go out and herald the good news of the gospel, the message that, that rescues sinners from hell, and yet we're motivated by the wrong things. It undermines the whole purpose of our efforts in evangelism and missions. That's why 1 Corinthians 4-5, Paul admonishes the Corinthian church about the importance of right motivations. 1 Corinthians 4-5, Do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord comes, because the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness. What are these things that are hidden? It's the motivation of our hearts, what drives us in ministry. The things now hidden will be disclosed. NIV version says, He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness, and Christ will expose the motivations, the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So one day, Christ will come, and there will be an apocalypse, an unveiling, a revelation. And it will not just be a revelation of himself, but it will be a revelation of our hearts. And he will expose what was motivating us in life, in ministry, in all that we do, in all that we say, He will expose it, and there will be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1, but there will be no reward if you're built with wood, hay, or straw. It will burn away. And those who are motivated by the right things will receive praise from God. Only those who are motivated by the right things So as I look back to my early years in ministry, I have much shame and regret. I do. Because I know, in light of Scripture, in light of right doctrine, that I was motivated by the wrong things in the early years of ministry. I was motivated by pride, by glory of man, the applause of man, a competitive spirit, you know, ego, you know, just... You know, just James Shin pride. I was motivated by those things rather than what was right in Scripture. You know, once in a while, I run into guys that I disciple back then. I'll run into them in a restaurant or something or in a market, and they'll say, "Oh, James, you know, they'll shake, shake, you know, my hand with both their hands, and like they'll say, thank you so much, and you ministered to me, you impacted me, you helped me so much, and you know, I'm really embarrassed because in my heart, I'm full of shame.'" I'm full of regret because they saw 
my love and my smile and my, you know, care for them and, you know, how I help them. But what they didn't see and don't see now is my heart. And I see that. And I see, you know, back then when I, you know, cared for you, it was, man, you know, it wasn't right. You know, when I minister to you, like, love for you wasn't in my heart. It was my own pride. So they're all thankful and I'm all filled with shame. All these awful memories come flowing back. And because my motivations were wrong, and I know that when Christ comes back and exposes my motives, my early years of ministry, really there'll be no reward because I built, I was building with wood, hay, and straw, and God was not pleased. Um, it was only by God's grace and mercy, uh, years down the road, God granted me the miracle, really, it's a miracle of seeing myself through the Word of God. It really is a miracle, isn't it? When you peer into the mirror of God's Word and you see beyond the externals, you see beyond just, I gotta do this, I gotta do that, I gotta obey here, I gotta obey there. God grants you spiritual sight to look into your own heart. And God does spiritual surgery and God give me grace to see His beauty, His glory, and also at the same time the ugliness of my own false motivations. Um, God showed me not just the ugliness of my own wrong motivations, but the beauty of biblical right motivations. And I'm still undergoing that spiritual surgery. I think all of us, our pride is such, it has spread through our whole hearts, our own minds, the noetic effects of our sins. It's, it's pervaded every ounce of who we are, and our hearts are idol-making machines every day, producing idolatry, worship of self. So it wasn't just one surgery, I'm cancer-free in a sense, spiritual sense. No, the surgery begun at that moment, but I'm still in a sense, figuratively, under the, under the knife. But at that, really that pivotal time, God did that work and granted me right motivations for life and ministry. And you know, I saw the results right away. I mean, it was really so, so freeing. I saw results almost immediately. Uh, one of the things I, I experienced was just wisdom and understanding. I grew an insight. Because, you know, one thing pride does is that it blinds you. Like you're blind, it's not blind spots, it's like blind sections or, you know, blind, you know, peripheral vision. And God granted me grace, my blind spots decreased in size, and I was able to see scripture in a clearer way, a more um, straightforward way, a literal way. It was always there, it was just, I was blind to it. And so I grew in wisdom, I grew in insight, I grew in understanding, and that was all a miracle of God's grace. I mean, there was true spiritual fruit, not in terms of how many people I witnessed to, how many verses I memorized, you know, how much work I did, how many hours I spent in prayer. No, true spirit. I mean, those are all important things, but I mean, the spiritual fruit of right motivations undergirding all those things, and the spiritual fruit of just my character. I was a, you know, a better husband, a better friend, a better son, you know, a better Christian, a better pastor. I was more humble. You know, character grew because of understanding the importance of right motivations. I mean, just joy in ministry. I was able to experience um, the sweetness of unity in ministry. I was used to working with people, but everybody had their own agenda, right? Everybody had different reasons for ministry. Everybody had just different motivations. So though we had joy in the work, there wasn't this sweetness of unity, knowing that we're all motivated by one thing, 
But once God granted me and all of us just that understanding of biblical motivations, we were able to experience the joy of unity and motivations for ministry. That we weren't just doing the work together, but our hearts were knit together. Our hearts were one. We're here for the same reason. We have no personal agenda. No one's driven by selfish ambition. We've checked our pride at the door. We're here for the cause of Christ. And there is just sweetness in that unity. There's such strength in that unity. It's like, um, you know, I'll die for that unity. It's so worth preserving, so worth experiencing. Um, These are things that I experienced and many of you experienced. But these are only possible if we have right motivations for life and ministry. Now, $10,000 question is, what are these right motivations? You know, Pastor James, okay, so what, what should be my motivation? Right, to be a better student, to be a better son or daughter, to be a good friend, to be a better Christian, to be a good evangelist, to be a good Bible study leader, to be a good shepherd, you know, to be a good worker. What ought to be my motivation so that I can grow in wisdom, so that I can experience true spiritual maturity, so that I can experience this unity in ministry that you're talking about? What are the motivations? To see that, we look to Jesus Christ, the Son, and we look to God, the Father. Really, they are our examples. They are our models. And by looking at Christ's motivation for going to the cross, and by looking at God, the Father's motivation for sending the Son to the cross, we see what our motivations must be as we follow Jesus Christ. So look at our Lord's motivation for going and the Father's for sending. And we find these motivations displayed beautifully in John 12, 27 through 29. Uh, let me quickly set the stage here, set the context. Our Lord triumphantly entered Jerusalem, seated on a donkey, uh, exactly 483 years as prophesied by Daniel chapter 9, right? So when I went through that, I confused many of you, one of the reasons why I want to do Daniel again. But exactly 483 years after Daniel prophesied it would happen, on that exact week, our Lord entered Jerusalem as the king, king of kings, lord of lords, but seated on a donkey, highlighting the manner of his coming. He's coming not to rule, isn't this beautiful? He's coming to serve. He's coming lowly. As, as prophesied by the prophet Micah, he's coming as a humble servant, not to be served, but to serve by paying the ransom for our sins. Our, the people are gathered around him, laying down palm branches, uh, exalting his name, praising him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Once he is in the temple, what does he do again? He kicks out the money changers, those who are selling animals. This is a house of prayer. This is my father's house. You have made it into a den of robbers out of pure holy zeal for the father. He, 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 he kicks everybody out so that they can pray in God's house. And as he is teaching in the temple, some Greek converts to Judaism approach Jesus about following him. Now this is in the outer court, the Gentile court. 
Um, that's where the concession stands were, were placed. They felt that it was okay to bother these Gentiles in their prayer by conducting business because they were unimportant. Our Lord saw the purpose of God's heart was to spread His salvation throughout the whole world. And so when Greek converts saw Christ care for them, care for their relationship with Yahweh, they went up to Jesus Christ and they asked Him about the kingdom, about His work, Our Lord told them that the road to His kingdom is suffering and death. That's the road that He is on. That all who would follow Him must die to themselves, previous passage, and love Him above all. So He's talking. They're talking about establishing a kingdom, starting a new empire. Our Lord's heart is about ending His life. It's not the start, it's really the end of his earthly ministry. And he's thinking about the cross of Christ. And as he contemplates the horrors of Calvary, sorrow, grief, terror overwhelms his soul. Abruptly, his thoughts of death prompt him to turn his attention away from these Greek believers and cause Christ, our Lord, to, to focus on his own soul. Our Lord here, in verse 27, he is so moved, so distraught over the death, over his death on the cross, that he pours out his heart and puts it into words. Found in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. We are able to listen into our Lord's internal monologue. He cries out, my soul is tetarakai, troubled, agitated. His inner man, his whole, his soul, heart, and mind is disturbed, full of grief, full of distress, agony is, is trembling in his heart. A mighty disturbance is occurring within him. Now we know that sorrow marked his life. Isaiah 53, 3 tells us that he is the man of sorrows. Sorrow always marked his life. But now here in John 12, it has risen to new heights. A man characterized by sorrow, not just an element of his life. It is what characterizes his life. There is no record in the gospel of Jesus ever laughing. But many records of him weeping grieving, full of sorrow, and that rose to new heights here in John 12. He was filled with sorrow because the thrice holy, perfect Son of God came as a man and He was thrust headlong into a world of sin. He was thrust into a world of disgusting depravity, of of limitless wickedness, of just pride and vanity, and when he encountered firsthand just uh, the extent and even the stench of man's sinfulness, his response was one of sorrow. In Mark chapter 3, there's an account of our Lord on the Sabbath. A man with a withered hand comes to him. And, of course, you know what that man wants. He wants to be healed. He wants to be whole again. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jerusalem, they have only one question. Is Jesus going to do work on the Sabbath? 
Is he going to work on the Sabbath? And so when Christ healed that man, they weren't rejoicing. They weren't filled with awe and gratitude for, to Christ and to God for having mercy upon this man and healing him. No, you know what they were filled with? They were filled with anger. They were filled with indignation that Jesus would work on the Sabbath. And our Lord responds to such hypocrisy. Our Lord looked around them. Mark 3, 5. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. I mean, it just broke his heart to see the stubbornness, how hard-hearted they were. Instead of seeing this miracle and seeing who Christ is, the Son of God, as the one who came from God, obviously everyone, they were fretting over their tradition of not healing on the Sabbath. John 11.35, when our Lord saw the impact of sin in mankind, the greatest impact, which is death, and when He saw Mary and Martha weeping at the graveside of Lazarus, our Lord wept. In Luke 19, when He saw Jerusalem and saw how they would not come to God, even after prophet after prophet after prophet were sent to to. To, to declare the word of God and invite them to turn and beg and plead with, with words and visual pictures to return to God who loved them with faithfulness and yet they would not repent our Lord's response in the Mount of Olives, descending on Mount of Olives as he looked up in the city of Jerusalem was one of just to weep openly, to shed tears. His sorrow reached its peak on the cross where all of our sins were laid upon Christ, and He became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made Him when you know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He became cursed for our behalf. Because on the cross... God's wrath was poured out and God would abandon him. I mean, we'll have communion in a few hour, in about an hour and a half. And when we drink the cup, it will be sweet to us. Well, we're able to drink that sweet cup because our Lord drank on our behalf the bitter cup of God's wrath. So all of us, we should drink that bitter cup of God's wrath and experience the torment of God's unbridled anger against our sins. And we should experience being forsaken by God and abandoned to our sins. That was David's fear when he was rebuked by Nathan with his sin with Bathsheba. God, take away anything. Take my life. Take my kingdom. Take my family. Take all my possessions. But do not take your spirit from me. God, do not leave me. That was his one fear. What David dreaded was experienced by Christ. And that was what caused our Lord the greatest pain, the greatest sorrow. That was what caused him to be troubled in his soul. The prospect of being rejected by God the Father on the cross. Now we've studied the Gospel of John and we've seen him you know, rejected by the world. You know, all he was rejected by his people. But, you know, those were slight offenses to Christ. 
didn't bother him compared to the experience he had on the cross when he was rejected by his own father because of our sin. The vivid realization of the inexpressibly dreadful character of his impending descent into the wrath of God shook his human soul to its very depths. So, Christ, filled with horror, considers this question. He's talking to himself, a rhetorical question. Says it out loud. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Now, this is not disobedience. This is not rebellion on our Lord's part. He's not acting on it. But it's, it's, it's wholly proper for him, in light of the agony of the cross, to consider the horror is so great. Shall I say, save me from this hour? And he knew if he prayed this prayer, the Father would rescue him immediately. Matthew twenty six fifty three, Our Lord rebuked Peter, Do you not think that I can call on my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels to rescue me. He knew that that ability, that power, that authority is wholly his because he is God incarnate. He is the second person of the Trinity. All he needed to do was say the word and he would not go to the cross. It was an option in terms of his ability, in terms of his authority, but not in terms of his will. His will was completely conformed to the will of the Father. Therefore, he says unto himself, and therefore we are glad. Therefore we rejoice. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Here he is resolute. He quickly steadies himself. It is for this purpose I have come. And sets himself on a direct course to the cross. And then in the next sentence, we get the glimpse of his motivation for the cross. And this must be our motivation for our lives. In the next sentence, our Lord unveils his heart and tells us why he's going to the cross. Because he loves the Father, and therefore will be abandoned by the Father. Verse 28, Father, glorify your name. It is a directive prayer. Father, glorify your name. You know, the definition of glory, it's impossible, but it must be done. The best I can do, my limited abilities, it's the, visible manifestation of God's holiness. It's the beauty of God. It's the power, honor of God. It's the quality of God's character that emphasizes His greatness, His authority. The best word is just beauty. It's just bright light. Bright light. Nelson's Bible Dictionary says, His glory is the manifestation of His holiness, divine attributes, and perfections. Our Lord was saying, Father, glorify Your name. That is my motivation. That is why I'm going to the cross. On the cross, I want to manifest Your holy justice. That this is how holy You are. That You will treat Your Son, Your own Son whom You love in this way. You are so righteous, you are so holy, you are so just, that you will not withhold your hand when you punish sin, even when sin is found in your own son. 
and you will pour out wrath, pour out hell to your son. And so if God treated his own son because of sin in this way, Apostle Paul argues, what will God do to his enemies? It is a woeful thing to land in the hands of an angry God. He will display and glorify God's righteousness on the cross. At the same time, to believers, he displays God's perfect love, his limitless mercy, his patience for each person of the elect, how long-suffering he will endure with us, and that seen on the cross, the wideness of God's mercy given to us, that Christ will go to the cross on our behalf, that we might have eternal life, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might have a relationship with the living God. Our Lord reveals that He died for God's name. He went to the cross for the glory of the Father's name, for the glory of God. That's good news to us tells us our Lord is not an idolater, that He did not worship us, that His motivation was not us. If it was, that would be bad news. That would tell us that He was a man seeking to please man, that He was man who had a fear of man and the fear of God. This tells us that His heart was filled with the fear of God and the glory of God. Yes, Jesus died on our behalf. He is our substitute for us. On our behalf, He died. But Jesus died for God. Jesus died for God's glory. You know, I told you this story years ago when I meet one of those, when I met one of these old disciples where I was filled with shame and regret. And I wanted to, like, undo the damage that I had done years past. I was trying to encourage him, share scripture, share theology. And and there was a conflict, there was disagreement. And he said, well, James, you know, what do you believe now? How have you changed from when you taught me years ago and what you believe now? Can you tell me how you have changed? You have about five minutes to do it. And I, in that limited time, I encapsulated it in one sentence. I said, Daniel, brother... You know, I believed then that Jesus died for me. Jesus died for man. Now I believe Jesus died for God. That his motivation for the cross was not because he loved us, right? And like a rose trampled on the ground, he took the fall and thought of me most of all. That's what I used to think. But now he took the fall and thought of God the Father most of all. That's why he wants the cross. And Daniel, for me, that changes everything. And most importantly, that changes my motivation. Before, if Jesus died for man, then I have to do everything for man, following our Lord's example. But if Jesus dies for God's glory, it changes my motivation. So I don't preach for man. I don't minister for man. I don't evangelize for man. I don't shepherd my family, for my wife, for my children. No, everything I do changes. Because... I follow Christ. And He died for God. Therefore, I'm called to live for God and die for me, for Him as well. Christ's ultimate end in His life and ministry was the glory of God. 
This is why Hebrews 12.2 Joy was set before him as he endured the cross. Scorning his shame, sat down at the throne, right hand of the throne of God. There was joy in his heart. Because if he died for us, you know, I don't think there would be joy. Because we're so undeserving. And because so many reject and so many disobey after being saved. There was nothing but joy in his heart. Because he was doing it not for us. Not to please us. He was not a pragmatist. There was joy in his heart because he's doing it for the Father whom he loved. For the pleasure of God the Father. He was zealous for God's glory. Now, what is the passion of God? What is the ultimate end? What is God's motivation for sending His Son to die on the cross for our sins? Is it John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, whosoever should love, love Him, believe in Him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, God loves us. And that is one of His motivations for sending His Son to die on the cross. But it's a subordinate motivation. It's a secondary motivation. The chief purpose, chief end for which our Father sent the Son is His own glory. Our Lord prayed, cried out, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father's response is the same. He could not contain Himself. He is so passionate about His own glory, about His own honor, about His own stature. He declares it in an audible voice. Some say it thundered. It wasn't thunder. It was the voice of God crying out, I have glorified it by sending you, and I will glorify it again by your death. I do all things for my own glory. The passion of God is for His own glory. Jonathan Edwards, commenting on this verse, said, It appears that all that is ever spoken of in the Scriptures as an ultimate end of God's works is included in that one phrase. The glory of God. All that ever was spoken about in the Scriptures as the ultimate end of God is that one phrase. The glory of God. That is spoken again, clearly explained to us in Philippians 2, 6-11, how Christ came as a humble servant, how He became a slave, He died a criminal's death, and God, He died on the cross, and God raised Him all for the purpose of, verse 11, to the glory of God the Father. All of it. His incarnation, His ministry, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His glorification, all of it was for the glory of the Father. Glory of the Father. First Samuel 12.22 For the sake of His great name, the Lord Yahweh will not reject His people. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. 1 Timothy 1.15 and 17 Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. 
Now who gets the glory? Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And Revelation 4.11, the last book of the Bible says, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. God's glory is everything. Our Father sent His Son, whom He loved, to die a horrific death. Yes, to, to show His love for us. Yes, to rescue us from the pit of hell. But ultimate reason was for His own name, for His, his glory, His stature. He wanted to show what an awesome, what a magnificent, mighty, holy, righteous, merciful, loving God He is. Wanted to reveal that to us that we might praise Him, that we might bless Him, that we might have the same motivation for our lives in all that we do, that we would not be motivated for a selfish gain, a pride or selfish ambition in life and ministry, that we would be motivated just like Christ and just like the Father. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it, all for the glory of God. Now, with our remaining time, what does this look like? When a person is motivated by the glory of God, what should be manifested in this life? Right. You know, if you're motivated, you see it in your life. Right? If you're motivated to lose weight, you, know, you diet. If you're not dieting, you're, you're not motivated, right? If you're not exercising, you're not motivated. If you're motivated, you're exercising. If you're motivated to get better grades or be a better worker, it's seen in your life. If it's not seen, then you're not motivated. Like motivation always results in action, always results in decisions, always results in a mindset. If those things do not exist, that means you're not motivated. You don't have the right motivations. So what must result. What are the results of a man or woman who are motivated by the glory of God? Three things. Previous passage. Previous passage. John twelve twenty four. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's a familiar illustration to an agrarian society that if you want to have fruit, you've got to sow seed. That seed has to be buried. And if you lose that seed, then there's harvest. If you don't lose that seed, there is no harvest. So the harvest, the reason for the harvest is that seed that is sown, buried in the ground. Our Lord is illustrating His own death. He's saying for there to be spiritual harvest, for there to be salvation in this world, for there to be a people set apart for the glory of God's name, He must die. Without His death on the cross, Spiritual fruit, harvest of salvation is not possible. That's the illustration. So, his motivation of God's glory caused him to die on the cross for our sins. Our result is that we are the fruit of his death. Our salvation is because he died. 
Everything that we have in our lives, every good, every blessing, every joy, every bit of righteousness, goodness, morality, wisdom, insight, everything is because Jesus died. If Jesus didn't die, we are in darkness. Children of the world, living for sin. So, if we are motivated by the glory of Christ, glory of God, then we give all glory to Christ's death. We live with that on the foremost of our minds. Any good that I do, any righteousness, any ministry, any encouragement, any wisdom I have, is all because of the cross of Christ, not because of me. We need to deal a death blow to our pride, to our vain glory, to our, our, our selfish ambition, prideful ambition to make much of ourselves. And wanting to be noticed, wanting to impress others, wanting to be recognized with the applause of man. We need to deal a death blow. If we, if we are motivated by the glory of God alone, we'll give all glory to the cross of Christ alone. And we will give honor to Him. That'll be our mindset. That'll be our lives. We'll ask and covet no credit, no honor, no glory for ourselves but to the cross of Christ alone. Second result of this right motivation is um, hatred. Right? Hatred. Like Christians, especially guys, we're not called to be nice guys. Christians should have hatred in their hearts. We should be like mean people. right? We should be angry people. We should be filled with hatred. Now, what's the object of that hatred? is life in this world. Hatred of our lives. Hatred of anything that competes with the glory of God. Because we're motivated for God's glory, anything that is in this world lovely to us, attractive to us, hinders us, weighs us down. If not, oh, I don't like it. Oh, I need to cut that out. Oh, one day I'll get around to it. Our response is vehement hatred against it because we're motivated for God's glory. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Unbelievers love this life. Every distraction, every joy in this life, they love it. They immerse in it. They're infatuated. They're immersed in it. But for us, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So we hate anything and anyone that would come between us and God's glory. J.C. Ryle said, He that would be saved must be ready to give up life itself. If necessary, to, in order to attain salvation, he must bury his love of the world with its riches, honors, pleasures, and rewards, with a full belief that in doing so, he will reap a better harvest. He who loves his life so much that he cannot deny himself will find at the end that he has lost everything. This truth ought to sink deeply into our hearts and must stir up self-examination. Self-examination. So it's a call to carry the cross. 
It's a call to die to self and live solely for the cross of Christ. If, if God's glory is your aim, it's a joy. It's what Brainerd called the pleasing pain of holiness. It hurts. But it's like you work out and your muscles ache. This pleasing pain. It's joy. Because what it's producing, the result. Likewise, you love the result of this pleasing pain of sanctification because more of God's glory in you and through you. But if your motivation is self, it's a burden. It's hassle. It's a burdensome. It's a distraction. Christ calls us to hate our lives in this world. And finally, um, continual following. If God's glory is your motivation, you will follow to the end. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also, wherever I am. Isaiah, Isaiah said the glory of God in Isaiah 6. And his response was, here am I, send me. And God says, you're called to do the work of preaching to a people who will never respond. They'll never listen to you. In fact, I will harden their ears. I will make their hearts calloused. I will close their eyes. They'll never get it. Isaiah said, that's my ministry for how long? Our father said, to the end. To the end. Because Isaiah's motivation was the glory of God. God sustained him to the end. See, if your motivation is, um, you know, selfish gain, you'll follow Christ on Sundays. You know, a few days a week. You'll follow Christ when you're in high school or college or single, whatever. You know, you'll, you'll do just, you're in and out, right? You're in and out. But, but if your heart is to glorify God, you are in. You continually follow Him. You know, this past week, one of the sweet joys I had was meeting with a man, I think almost 70 years old. He was saying, James, in light of John 17, I must pursue holiness. With tears in his eyes, he was pursuing holiness. Wow, that was so beautiful. He's been walking with the Lord longer than I've been alive. And yet his fiery love for Christ and fiery desire to conform to the likeness of Christ. Man, that's awesome. How is he able to sustain that kind of heart for over 50, 60 years, 50 odd years of his life. How is that possible? I believe. Because by God's grace, early on in his Christian life, God granted him grace to have God's glory to be his chief motivation. That is the case. You will follow him all the days of your lives, glorifying him to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit gently, tenderly, but definitively working in our hearts. Oh God, we see the ugliness of sin in our hearts. We see how awful it is. And Lord, help us to grow a deep, intense, and hatred abiding, abiding hatred against sin in our hearts, in our flesh, and sin in this world. Help us, oh God. Grant us grace. Lord, be merciful to your people. 
untether us from the things that entangle us from the race of faith. And Lord, grant us the joy of running with freedom in the path of your commands. O Lord, help us to be freed from these wrong motivations that lead us astray from our first love. Lord, may you be our soul vision. May our hearts cry and long for your glory only so that in all of our lives we'll give glory to you alone. We'll give credit and glory to you alone. That we would grow in hatred for anything and anyone that would compete for our love for you. And so that, oh God, that we will follow you all the days of our lives. That this enduring vision of the glory of God and the cross of Christ will sustain our faith to the end. Lord, we thank you for considering us worthy Though we are unworthy, considering us worthy to know your heart, know your motivation, so that we might conform to you in every way, be united with you in every way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.